Welcome to season two of the Shopstool podcast, a podcast for woodworkers and the maker community in general. With Joey Chalk from King Post Timberworks, Brian Cush from Sawdust Bureau, and Robin Lewis from Robin Lewis Makes. Hi everyone, I hope you're all very well. This is episode 10, season two of the Shopstool podcast. As always, I want to start by introducing my two co-hosts. Joey, how are you today? Very good, guys. How are you? Not too bad. And Brian, how's it going? I'm excellent. How are you? Very good. Very good. Thank you. Good stuff. And my name is Robin Lewis. Welcome to the show, everyone. So today we're going to be talking about um, creative burnout. And um, just to put a bit put it into perspective, um, I've just finished a very large project. It's been a it's been, I worked it out yesterday, it was six weeks and one day yesterday since <laughs> I published a video. So it's, it's probably one of my longer projects and, and, and builds. And now that it's come to an end, and all I've been doing is, is thinking about this for, you know, almost two months straight, the idea of moving on to a new project where I've got to be creative again, I'm really struggling to to get into that space. So today we're going to be talking about burnout, but just to start off with, I really want to talk about creative burnout. Like you've been creative or you've been in that creative mindset and now you've got to stop, sort of stop like hard where you are and move into a different creative mindset. And, you know, I'm, I'm really struggling to just step out of this. Um, so I guess... It's obviously, obviously, for some of us, Joey, you are very much, you, are, you follow what your clients ask. So in terms of that creativity, you're sort of being, you've got a... Guidance. Yeah, you're being guided. You've got a scope to follow. <laughs> yeah. But I have a, I, I could do anything I want now. So my it's next video... It's really hard. <laughs> yeah, I can go anywhere. Yeah. So to find that creative juice, yeah, I'm really struggling. So, my first, I mean, as soon as you say that, and, and it makes a lot of sense to me that I have a lot of um, boundaries given to me, and that's what you almost need to do to yourself. Say, so mm. decide you might want to make a table, and then, right, what what is like what's a feature I I need to add or want to add to it? What's something I want to try? And straight away, by by saying that, you've kind of eliminated a whole bunch of other options because of that one feature. Yeah, so give yourself that, that, those boundaries, as you say, and then work within that, and then suddenly your scope is a lot smaller and a bit more attainable, so to speak. And your end result might not even contain what you initially said, but it's given you like a really good point to start at least sketching mentally what something might look like. Yeah. And then you go, oh, that sucks, delete that, add this, delete that, put that bit in, <laughs> yeah. put this detail on it, oh, that, that's crap. And then eventually you whittle something down to, to some form that is pleasing. Mm. Brian, before the show, we, you, we were talking about how you have very little time to be creative. So when you, when you get the opportunity, you run with it. But are you consciously like you're working on a project are you consciously thinking of other projects or other other skills that you want to try while you're doing that and making notes or do you compartmentalize everything as you're working on it i think it definitely depends whether it's something if it's a project for myself versus client work 
you know, when when I do client work, it's been it's gone through sketches and then into a CAD model. The CAD model is what I do my pricing off. So once the client signs off on that CAD model, it's the details are staying the same, the price is staying mm-hmm. the same, and I have to try to make it in the number of hours that I've quoted on. Yeah. So I try to make as few changes as possible which I'm going to completely undermine by saying I'm doing a piece of client work at the minute and I'm going back and forth and changing details all the time because he's allowed me the flexibility and I'm trying a few techniques that I haven't done in a long while. Um, But yeah, if it's a piece for myself or a gallery piece for a competition or exhibition, I do find I'm going through the same type of thing that you're talking about, just going round and round in circles. I might have had a CAD model or a physical model at the start of the project and by the end of it, it has gone through so many different versions that it doesn't resemble anything like what it started. So I do, I, I know what you're going through, mate, and it, it is tough. But uh, mm. yeah, for client work, like I, I went through, I was doing a, um, a presentation at Wood Dust about how to sort of, how to become, uh, how to move from being a, a woodworker as a hobby into like a emerging maker and then the path through from emerging maker to a sort of a professional maker Mm. and I went through and clocked all my hours for uh, a month (laughs) and the amount of time being creative is very very small so I ended up at 6% as design and development 6% of my hours in a month as low as that yeah the number of of hours that you spend actually making furniture would also probably frighten you it's it's, uh, it's 40% Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All the materials, sales, quoting, marketing, business admin, yeah. deliveries, freight, packing. Like, I mean, that is, that's over half my, my <laughs> working hours for the month. So, yeah, I find that it would be pretty bad if I was suffering from creative burnout when that is 6% of my hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But like I said, if I was doing what, what you do, Robin, and it's more about content yeah. and trying to make interesting stuff where you don't have a client guiding you the whole time, it, it, I'm, it's understandable how it happens. So, yeah, I would say, like Joey suggested, you know, if you set yourself some parameters and um, sort of be your own client nearly, mm. uh, as opposed to letting a job go on and on and on, uh, it, would, it would probably help. Because, yeah, I make stuff all the time, which is just, I'm just like, what is, this is terrible. I would never choose this. Why am mm. I, I like, <laughs> kicking myself for having these boundaries? But in a way that's like, then sometimes I'll sit back and look at my drawing and think, well, how, how can I work with these terrible circumstances I've been given? I've only got this much space to make all these things happen. Yeah. And then, like, where's the light bulb? Let's make something happen. And, and then that's when I start really thinking outside the box. I'm like, well, you know, it doesn't have to have a door on the cabinet. I can turn it upside down. I can hang it from the ceiling. And I don't need feet on it. You know, you can, mm. and then that's when you can start really thinking um, sometimes it's harder to sell those ideas. You might you might cross all the T's that the client wanted, but it looks so different from what they probably envisaged that mm. it's not mm. quite going to work. But you 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 got a good mental exercise out of it at least. Yeah, I found myself for the last couple of days just because now obviously I've got a chance for my mind to just wander because I'm not thinking about trying to get through the next step of the chair. And I'm coming up with all of these interesting ideas, but then I find myself coming down to the workshop and I just look at my now blank workshop because all the tools are packed away or there's no furniture, it's all empty. And I just think, oh man, I've got to start this all over again <laughs> from scratch. And it's, 
Yeah, and and because this project has been so long and it's it's been quite a good project, there's that expectation personally and from from and externally to, mm. to make something as good and as big and as impressive. So it's almost a, a fear of 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 starting because it's yeah, gotta be is as good. Such a common th- workshop anxiety, like the <laughs> yeah. first cut. You know, going from the drawings to that first cut, um, everybody gets it. Uh, what I find is, at the minute, I'm trying to refine a, a stool back, and it's it's gone from being a flat back to a curved back to a two-directional curve to two-directional curve plus hand carving. And what I find is, rather than trying to jump in and just do a set of four backs at once, grab some scrap timber, you know, and don't be precious about it. Start cutting it up do a few different joinery techniques, photograph it, even if it's just in plywood or MDF or something, photograph it and then just scroll through your photo album. And you know, it doesn't have to be pretty. Um, and that might be a good way of just sort of breaking that anxiety. It's not about cutting an expensive piece of timber and you're, you know, you're worried you're gonna cut it short or cut it wrong, yeah. but just get in there and yeah, get cutting. So I had a really similar kind of problem this afternoon earlier today. Um, was stumped so I use SketchUp for drawing my models and there's a whole that's a whole different uh, killer fish but the short short of it is that the free version has a whole, a whole bunch of tools were deleted from it and they put them onto the the, the paid version um, oh right when did that happen uh, slowly over the last few years I've just been deleting oh. some really good tools and you've got to pay for it now anyway the I was stumped. I couldn't draw what I wanted to draw, so I couldn't see how this model was actually going to look with the feature I want. I envisaged in my head, and I just went and downloaded the free version for a 30-day trial of the of the paid version. Sorry, of, of SketchUp, and straight within like three minutes, I had the piece drawn that I wanted because the tool was there, and I right. could fit. Um, was actually drawing a, a cabriole leg in the right proportion for this table and I could see straight away that my proportions were all off and I had to redraw it four or five times but unless just by taking that extra step and being able to model it with the right tool saved me so much time as actually having to make real templates like Brian was talking about which I absolutely think is an awesome idea as well for me in this instance I could have been I could have wasted a whole day making one of these legs in what I thought was the right profile but until I actually got the right tool to model it in 3D instead of 2D um, yeah and so that really helped me with my creative process because that actually just by doing that I completely changed the design of my table and, and redesigned the base of this table around the fact that I could draw what I needed to draw mm. Do you use CAD software yeah. Robin or? Yeah I, I do so this one I did for this chair I did a number of iterations through it sort of I, I think to be fair I actually drew more components for it so I was looking at, at scale in components um, for for like the bigger projects where there's a lot of curves and that kind of thing I'll sometimes use some uh, use SketchUp but you know I may not but definitely for your more standard square builds I'm trying to force myself to start with that and then get into it just because it removes a lot of those those potential mistakes i find just being able to see it you can you can see a couple of steps ahead with it 
so that, that's where I am at the moment in terms of, of my quote-unquote burnout. Um, but we're, we're going to open this up a little bit more just to, I guess, just workshop burnout or just, just business burnout as well. <laughs> so, Brian, you said you had a, uh, an interesting story. Uh, yeah, so I'm doing a set of stools for a, a client, a repeat client, mm. who came to me with a tight enough budget. But um, he's a good guy, and I wanted to... Rather than making something that I'm not going to photograph and put on my website to sell to other potential clients, he's basically getting a very good deal on a set of stools. And, uh, yeah, like I said, the original design, it could have just all been dominoed together, but I decided to go out and buy a nice flat tooth <laughs> blade and do some some double bridle joints. And then I was like, right. oh, where can I take it from there? And then I did some through tenons with my shaper. Um, I mm. hadn't used it yeah. before, so I wanted to, again, use another technique. Um, and then I was like, oh, how can I waste more time on this? You know, I'll put a <laughs> flat back on the stool. And it was, it was comfortable. It sort of supports you in the right place. I was like, if it was curved, it might be more comfortable. And then I added the other curve to the back so you can pull the stool out so it feels nicer on your fingers. Um, and yeah, it's got a bit out of control, but we're nearly there. We're nearly there. The, the final, final, final prototype is done, and now I've just got to get into making the other the other stool backs. But it's quite a fun process. Um, like I tend to work mainly with machinery rather than hand tools, apart from chisels. Like I wouldn't really uh, freeform carve much stuff. Mm. So it's been nice to get. I've got my grandfather's old tools, and yeah, just doing a bit of freehand carving. Bit of music on, quiet workshop. It's it's a nice place to be. And I guess you've got to worry about putting too much of yourself into that, because that's a, you're you're almost letting yourself get out of control. And by the end of it, you've you've spent too much time, too much energy on something that shouldn't have had it. <laughs> and then the next yeah. job is pushed back and you come home from work and you've had a good day but you've got to then sit at the computer and, and work on a design for another client um, and I don't know how you guys work but for me creatively I'm kind of best in the evenings everything's quiet I know there's nothing happening um, so I will tend to sit up till midnight 1am with a sketchbook computer glass of wine and just work and I don't know mm. whether it's the way my body clock is set or whether it's like delirium from just being completely <laughs> exhausted. But I've just always found that's, that's the way I work better. If I try to sit down and design something at 10 o'clock in the morning, it looks like crap. <laughs> I, so, used to yeah. be, I, I used to be like you, Brian, where I would do exactly the same thing. And yeah. once I'd relax, had dinner, sitting relaxed on a couch and I'd start, ideas would start flowing. Um, but then as, as I got more and more work coming through, it got to the point where I had to design three things that day and get drawings out because things had to happen. And so I got to the point where it was nine o'clock in the morning and I was like, right, I have to draw this and quote this in the next hour and then move on to the next one. And um, so I, I got good. I have gotten good at um, forcing myself to design when I, so I will draw a box that is my bound boundaries of, of the thing I have to design, be it a set of drawers or whatever it is. And then from there, I just start thinking about how's the top going to look, how's the legs going to look, and I just draw those components in. And then I just start kind of working my way from top and bottom through to the middle, 
and mm. it kind of by adding like I was saying before uh, Robin by adding certain features it allows or disallows other features to happen yeah and and it, and whether that's the best design is kind of beside the point if the overall design of it I, I'm happy with how it looks I can send that to the client and that's like a first step mm. and that there's like something ticked off and, and this is coming back to the, the burnout as well whether it's good or bad the way I tend to deal with the amount of stress of having to do so much and still get to the workshop and actually cut wood um, I try and palm off responsibility is the, the not really the best way to describe it but I want to put the decision making in the hands of every, anyone else I can I get my part done. So if it's replying an email to someone, I'll do it as soon as I can, straight away, bam, and now it's in your court. I don't have to think mm, about it. Mm. Um, and so if it's if I have to design two or three pieces in a day, it's just let me get something on paper. For a start, if I can get you a drawing and a price, I may have just cancelled out the, the valid, valid, what's the word? Validity? <laughs> Validity. As a client, yeah. <laughs> Um, because the price may be completely out of their range. And so I don't want to spend too much time on it anyway. I don't want it to sit and design for six hours and then have them say, oh, we were thinking the chairs were going to be $100 each. That's, mm. not, that's not my client. So I want to get them a price as soon as possible. And then I say, you can make any changes you like, but this is their starting price. And if they yeah. come back to me at that point, I'm like, okay. And then in the meantime, I've had more time to think about the design and all, all the rest. But I just need to get something to them, gets it off my plate, and it lets me carry on with the day. Um, I'm not sure, like I say, if it's the best option for dealing with the amount of things I have to do. But it gets at least it gets me through the day, so I can get work done. Mm. Yeah, it gives mm. you a clear head. Yeah, I hate having, I hate getting to the end of the day and knowing I haven't answered 11 emails. Because in the morning I'm going to have twice that many anyway to deal with, plus those 11. Have you gone through, Joey, that struggle of trying to trying to um, um, set your your work period so that you don't end up just working twenty four seven? Like you know, you start work at six o'clock and you end work at nine o'clock, and and that's it, and it's a hard cutoff. Have you worked that out, or is it still a very fluid? No, uh, that's, time? I mean that that came about almost as soon as we had kids. Um, mm. I, I used to sit straight after dinner and then work doing drawings and that's when I, like I say, I was creative and I would spend hours fiddling on drawings and getting to the client in the middle of the night. As soon as you have kids, you, you can't do that. Mm. I, I can't do that in our household at least. Um, I don't want to be a dad who's stuck in an office not playing with the kids. That's not why I had kids. Mm. So... Um, for me now, as soon as that happened, really, it was, I'm at work, I leave at home at 7.30, I get home at 4 o'clock. That's it. That's and my that's work it. time. And you There's do no not other, work I outside. I don't work yeah. outside of that. I can't. I can't get to the workshop. Very rarely, I'll come in now, my my oldest is four, and sometimes we'll come in and, and work in the workshop and make a, a model plane or something out of balsa wood or something like that. But um, he's not that interested yet. And so having those constraints, again, it's like I know exactly how much time I've got to work. And so I need to 
just jam-pack my day. I'll tell you what, that's one of the worst things about having a home workshop. Mm. And I say worse because obviously there's a lot of positives that go with it, being able to have the space around you all the time. But particularly with, with content creation as well, so the workshop and then the content creation goes on upstairs in the office, I'm always at work. Basically, mm. I work my, my full-time job, the IT company that I work for, I work from home as well. So yeah. I'm always on the clock and it is really hard to, to break away. And there's so many times that I catch myself saying to my wife, just, just can, I, can I just get 10 minutes? I just need to quickly go send an email. <laughs> and it's, it's bad. It's really That's bad. Right. So do you, do you um, something that is a weird thing for me, if I'm not in my work clothes, I can't do work in a workshop. Exactly, exactly the same. So if, Robin, do you like say, right, I'm going to the workshop, I've got to go put my work clothes on, like my get dirty clothes, whatever they are. And once they're on, then you can't go back and do computer work because you're in your, your dirty clothes. Like, because it, it's a mental break. It's like, now yeah. I'm changing my suit and now I can't do this thing because I'm ready to go for this thing. Yeah. And that's a real bit like in the weekends, I get up and put my regular clothes on. I really don't even want to touch my tools because it's like, I don't want to get dirty. Like, you know, I just, it's not in the, not in the right mindset because I, I haven't gone through that routine of, you know, getting my workwear on. Yeah. Yeah. It's an odd thing, but to me, it's a, it makes a really good mental barrier for, for that kind of thing or not. <laughs> It's, it's amazing how both of you sort of signed off on that, that you both yeah. have the exact same. Because how, how far are you from your workshop, Ryan? I'm about 15 minutes. Mm. So it's, it's close enough. Yeah. Um, but my old workshop was a slightly different setup. It was, a, um, it was like a communal building that was sort of divvied up. You had your own studio and everybody had their own tools. But it was 24-hour access people would come in at all times like I would finish work as an architect at sort of six o'clock have some dinner head to the workshop stay in the workshop till 11 30 12 o'clock cool. cycle an hour back back to my home and then get up and go to work in the morning as I was leaving there'd be people coming in to do like Jeez. welding there'd be band practice <laughs> there'd be photographers yeah and it was a really nice thing to be involved in but I, like I'm I probably agree with you Joe. once you have kids Mm. things change a lot but yeah. um, my current workshop is adjacent to a uh, residential neighborhood so right. my working hours are pretty locked in I can't change them I can work at weekends are you, your, it, is your workshop itself in a commercial zone it is yeah the boundary, so can't I mean, you make as much noise as you like <laughs> kind of kind the of, boundary yeah. between the light residential and residential is hard up against a seven story apartment block Right. Like how they were allowed to build there, I don't know. So they had environmental protection come in with their decibel meters, oh and we God. were we were well under it. But yeah. I don't want to piss the landlord off. Yeah. The landlord doesn't want to piss the residents off. Like yeah. if they want to do anything on this site in the future, they want people on side. So yeah, I kind of I play ball. If I'm Fair if enough. I know I'm going to be here late, I'm doing things that are site like doing finishing yeah. or something. Sanding. Um, yeah, but I definitely find that. Um, I've heard people talking about it in different office environments, but I find that, you know, your body flow changes mm. person to person. And yeah, I'm more creative in the evening. I'm more focused in the afternoon. If I have a tricky piece of joinery that I need to cut, oh, I'll leave really? it in the afternoon. I'll do all the sort of boring batch work in the morning. I'll stick a podcast <laughs> on 
I'm on just, the opposite. <laughs> really? No, yeah. I'll just zone out. My coffee will still be kicking in. And, um, yeah, just get the boring stuff done in the morning and then the stuff wow. that I really focus on, sort of 2 o'clock till 4 o'clock, and then finishing after that, and then home and be creative. It's, wow. it's funny. I've just sort of fallen into that rhythm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm 100% a morning person. Mm. I, used, I used to not be. The morning used to be the worst part of the day for me, but now by... 10 o'clock, well, no, even even earlier, 9 o'clock, I don't want to work. I just, I, I want to just relax. I want to, you know, right. have some of that time. And, yeah, then by 9 o'clock in the morning, then I'm, yeah, ready to go. And maybe it's, maybe, Joe, maybe it's the kids thing. Maybe it is. Maybe that just, yeah, it forces you to shift that. But having said that, I feel a lot healthier doing this because I used to be just like what you were saying, Brian. Two o'clock in the morning was normal. That was mm. that was when you were operating. And I look at it now, and I'm like, that is not, the, that's not the way we are designed to yeah. to operate. I, I felt really strange when I had to. I remember I shifted the computer from home to the office to the workshop, and that was really strange that I I wasn't comfortable. I wasn't in a cozy place to sit and do emails and stuff. I mean, I, I used to try and do all my emails in the evening and just just go to the workshop and just work mm. and it just is not possible anymore probably because the amount of work I'm getting now is probably four times what it was two or three years ago and um, so there's the whole other level of organization as well but, but it's um, probably helped you cap your working hours a bit, a bit better like it yeah. sort of keeps you at a 40-45 hour week instead of going to a 60 hour week yeah, oh, I used to, I mean, when I was building back in the day, I was doing 80 hours and um, yeah, 60 to 80 and we're like hardly making any money, you know, and it's, and, it, and, and I'm, that's part of the reason why I ended up with cancer, I'm sure, because mm. it's just too much work trying to get too much done and um, just had to scale everything back. Yeah, interesting. So, so Joey, have you had any moments where you have crossed that line where you feel like you've had to, I don't know, bring in extra help? Or yeah. just say to a client, sorry, <laughs> this is not going to happen for the next couple of weeks. Oh, that's my standard at the moment. Um, oh, no, but from, I mean more from a, yeah. I was going to deliver here, but due to uh, circumstances, um, quote unquote, I've had to put it down. I haven't quite had to do that because other clients are saying, hold off, we're not ready at the same time. It's annoying in the sense that I'm having to juggle and I like to have my calendar, like with my jobs marked out for each week. And now it's just a big scribbly mess with arrows pointing from this week to that week and, and everything's overlapping. And I'm trying to keep track of uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven jobs at the moment. Yeah. And um, it's a, that's a bit stressful. Mm. And I just keep looking at the list going, what needs to happen? Oh, I'm waiting for this next job, waiting for the client to do something. Next job, that's ready for delivery, but they're not ready for me to deliver yet. Next job, oh, yeah, I've got to wait for the delivery of plywood tomorrow. You know, and it's just like lots of, lots of ticking off of boxes. <laughs> but I guess you've got, it, you've got it so locked down and scheduled that that's how you can keep on top of it. So it doesn't. I try. Yeah, it doesn't I get, get on to. Top I do get to the point where I'm like sitting. I, I get home and I just say to my wife, "Man, I, I am not sure that I'm coping this week. You know, I've got this is happening, this is happening, um, and I 
barely get halfway through the sentence and one of the kids is screaming and so that's the end of the conversation so um that's that's about as much as uh as much sympathy as i get because then i realize how much harder the wife's got it <laughs> yeah i think we'll leave it there on on the burnout side of things it sounds like we're all pretty good and and healthy mentally and physically in our in our positions which is great that's good um i don't, I don't know what i'm gonna what i'm necessarily gonna be doing next but i'm sure i'll figure it out um, Joey, I wanted to ask you about a picture that you put up on Instagram of a top that you glued together. Sure. And in the glue up, you've glued both the heartwood and the sapwood. Oh, um, the walnut your, table. Was the walnut one? Yeah. 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 Um, now maybe this is this is a bit of a you know because I'm still fairly young to woodworking, but I've always heard that you should. You either, you either keep the sapwood out or you only use the sapwood. You don't mix and match within a glue-up. Um, I think there's sapwood and there's sapwood. Um, and it also depends... Now, I'm no, I'm no tree expert, but it does depend on the species of tree, I think. So a good example would be, I know in pine, that the sapwood, I mean, it's just pithy and terrible. It just falls apart. It's shit. Um... And you get in a bit further, and you it turns into what I guess is heartwood. Um, with walnut, when you're actually working the timber, at least, um, there's no difference that I could tell in density. It's a coloration thing. And mm. it's I'm not sure if it's an age thing or a, um, certainly it's to do with how close to the bark it is, is sappy. The color changes. I don't know that there's a density issue as much I think when you get right to the edge there is but I don't think it changes that much um, and with the timber I was working with with that walnut particularly there's so much sapwood all through it running in all directions on diagonals and um, if I'd cut it out there would be no timber left so I think there's a, a point where you do what you do mm. Yeah. I just, I don't think, I don't see it as that big an issue, to be honest. Yeah, okay. Maybe it's just one of those dogmatic rules that's been passed on because people have read it and no yeah. one's really necessarily questioned it as such or tested it. Maybe. I mean, maybe, maybe it was older glues or something like that. Yeah. that maybe if you're working with eucalypts, I would say you, you won't notice any hard Probably doesn't matter. Yeah. It's, it's hard regardless. And, um, I mean, yeah, I it's more of an aesthetic thing, I think. Mm. Yeah, the exception may be that the the center of the tree, the pith, is always. I mean, that's that is the worst timber usually, and I don't know what it's like on eucalypts, but I know on other species that that center part where you have a pith running up the middle of the tree. I mean, that you just want to steer away from that because that is the main trunk line of water up the tree. Yeah, and um, it's just crap. So if you can cut I'd that out, I rarely even see that in timber yards yeah. here. Like, yeah. it's just not really sold. No, exactly. Yeah. Mm. One of my older projects, I used Morton Bay Ash, which isn't a eucalypt, but it, I think it used to be classed as one and then it got removed from the classification. I think, I could be wrong though. But just, just to give you an idea of where, you know, the, the density and the hardness of it. Brian, have you worked with Morton Bay Ash before? I haven't, no. Right, super hard, really, really hard wood. And um, I made a bookshelf out of it and used the sapwood around the front. So it was sort of right. framed by the sapwood and then the heartwood was in the back. 
working the sapwood was beautiful because <laughs> I, I don't know if it was just a little bit softer or the grain right. changed, yep. but it was beautiful. As soon as you hit that hardwood, it's just, you, you know, it splintered your plane blade because it was just <laughs> so incredibly hard. And while I was working on, on that, I thought, oh, okay, that must be why you don't mix and match the two because clearly there's a difference between maybe not the density, but the grain direction, the orientation. Could be. It could be, and it could be that sapwood, if there's a lot of it, and it, if there is a density change at all, it's possible that the wood's going to move at different rates, and depending on what your joinery methods are, it could have implications. Mm. Yeah, well, I just I just kept it out just in case, but yeah, yeah. I won't do that then, going forward. <laughs> Maybe I'll, I'll look at including it. I've got a whole stack of it still outside, so I'll, I'll put it to good use. Um, I've got a question for Brian then. Um, I I noticed on one of your Instagram posts a while ago, you had a picture of your pinch bench with all these measurements and diagram schematic type things all over it, which looked at like a very... So uh, this may be a whole other episode, but I wanted to touch on how you go about actually designing something. It looked, it looked like you sat there and had a formula like... So... If, for a bench this wide that must be this long and there must be this much tolerance between this, this and this. It, it seemed like like it, it seems so foreign from what how I would go about designing something. And I wondered if did you actually start designing it with mathematics and formulas or did you did it would it was it a sketch and then refined down with some kind of formulation or it, uh, the way I design is quite formulaic in some ways. Like, so it was that image was for an article that I've done for Wood Review, and right. it was all. I, I was asked when I was interviewed by them before about whether I used things like the golden ratio in furniture right. design, and I'm like, no, I don't. I don't like the proportions <laughs> of the golden ratio. Like, I think oh, okay. it ends up. It, How dare you? It makes, How yeah. dare you? I know that's, that's just my ratio. <laughs> <laughs> But to me, everything just looked slightly squat with it. Do you know? Yeah. Like yeah. my kind of mentality is that, especially if you're trying to do something that looks modern, if it's meant to be long, make it super long. If it's meant to be tall, make it really tall and skinny. Use the yeah, grain right. direction of the wood. Use um, the type of joinery you're using to elongate things. But um, yeah, it probably is a hangover from my, my days in architecture is to design with grids. Right. Um, and they're not necessarily, like it wouldn't be a same, the same ratio that I would use across all projects, mm. but I might draw a shape and like the way that a certain part of the shape felt. And then I would try to uh, reintegrate the proportions of that shape into another place within the oh, form. All right, that's clever. Yeah. So yeah. I might end up with four pieces of different ratio that repeat in that one project. The well, next project yeah. might take two of those common ratios and then add its own. Um, but yeah, it'll still be manipulated. Like I'll yeah. stretch things and bend things and all that kind of stuff. But I do like using using grids. You know, I think awesome. um, uh, my sister's a photographer, and I spent quite a bit of time doing photography myself. So as a photographer, you know the whole rule of thirds thing—the way that you place things in an image yeah. to control the viewer's eye—I think is important with furniture as well. Um, oh, yeah. In terms of stick, like really sticking to a golden ratio, a golden ratio is great for things like photography and painting, where it's a flat yeah. image. But when you yeah. add a third dimension, third dimension. To it, yeah, I think it's more about playing with perspective. So I like 
repetition and like lines to to add that like to play with the perspective as opposed to just getting something that looks really formulaic and uh, ratioed from a front elevation that you would never really see a piece in unless it's in a huge space Mm. yeah yeah Yeah, so because my design so i was talking a bit earlier about this table and if this job happens it's going to be so 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 cool um, easily like a step up from anything I've done um, very cool job but let's get a price anyway um, so but essentially I was given nothing just we need the dining table and it needs to do this and this and this and I have some other ideas about the design from who the clients are but my I just like would <laughs> it seems like you would go right this there's a certain proportionality that should be in, involved and you might start like drawing grids out or whatever um and i i just go like let's draw a table just draw anything that i think it might look like and then i go right that looks like crap it needs to be longer it's all just by vis- visual to me and i'll mm. put like um and i'll import uh like a little person into the image sitting on a chair or something and they go right that would well, that proportionally to the person that looked crap so i'll change this and i'll change it and i I don't do anything by i don't measure proportions i just do it by visual visually does it look right Mm. um and i guess i I hate to say the word but i I guess that's like more what an artist would how an artist might go about it or some different kind of artist you know and i don't even class myself as that but it seems like i'm just a way more visual designer rather than getting down to the nitty-gritty of numbers or anything that may be form- formulaic. But. but it is quite an intuitive thing. I think what you're saying is, it, like, they are similar processes to what I go through. My mm. start point is just different, and then we kind of arrive at the same point where it is just tweaking things until visually it looks right for us. Yeah, right. And also, um, I don't, like, I don't, like, I don't want my work to look like other people's work. And my work looks different from your work and your work looks different from Robin's work. And I think that's mm. a good thing. So mm. if everybody just designed off the same ratios, then you end up with yeah. furniture that looks yeah, the same. That's right. <laughs> is, yeah. that a, is that a... Are, are you... When you say you don't want it to look like other people's work, are, is that from a... Um, like, are you doing it hard and fast like your you know, Bob's furniture looks amazing, but because I don't want it to look like his, I'm going to do something else. So are you, is that desire to be different overriding a lot, of, a lot of the aspects of the design or is it still primarily about the design? I would very rarely start a project. If I got commissioned to do a dining table, I'm never typing dining table into Google. I was just going to say, just ah, don't look at Bob's furniture. The worst thing you, it's the <laughs> yeah. worst thing you can do. I, um, I purposely didn't do that today. <laughs> yeah. Like it's fine to look, you know, on Instagram and see the way other people are detailing things. Mm. And uh, the front door that I just finished, you know, like I mm. looked at one of Joey's old videos for that and took inspiration for the structure of the inside and how the door would work. But I just find if you start looking at other people's work too closely, you're going to be influenced by it, even if it's a subconscious mm. level. And uh, there are huge issues with plagiarism and, you know, mm. people have called me out before um, 
I have never directly plagiarized anybody's work. I used to be an architect. I know the consequences of this. Mm. But there is a point where your work will start to be influenced by other people's work. And they might have been influenced by you and ended up designing something that you haven't even designed yet. But it mm. will be somewhere along the lines of the type of work that you produce. So mm. It's a really hard thing to balance. It's but really I would, interesting. I tend to avoid it by not looking for inspiration from furniture designers, but again, a hangover from my architecture days, looking at things like architecture, sculpture. Mm. Um, mm. I've also said chefs, I find yeah. pretty inspirational. Like they all have access to exactly the same ingredients. They all create different dishes. And it's just about putting their own personality twist That's on things. You know, we all have access to the same <clears throat> timbers. You can buy the same machinery. Yeah. But mm. um, I think it's still possible to come up with like not every mm, shape, like not every form has been developed. Um, mm. And for me, the process <clears throat> of diagramming forms, coming through architecture, diagramming three-dimensional forms has definitely helped influence me more than looking at any traditional furniture makers. I didn't go to a furniture school. I'm pretty much self-taught. Um, so yeah, I would say look for influences outside of furniture if you're really struggling, Robin. Mm. In that same kind of line of um, questioning what you just said is uh, don't Google things and you know you didn't go to school to become a furniture maker I purposely chose not to look to be educated you know properly because I didn't want to get taught what everyone else had been taught um, and I, that make that doesn't make some sense in some respects but I, I just I'm, I just didn't want to learn what everyone else had learned, and then you see a lot of the same kinds of furniture when you go into a furniture mm. store. So the designers who are design, designing that are obviously very similarly trained, it would seem, or that the public just want the same kind of stuff. But, yeah. Um, I remember I, my old neighbour when I was living in, in Adelaide was a retired builder. And it used to drive me mad because it's exactly what you're talking about where he was helping me renovate my house and we would do something. He would say, you need to do it like this, X, Y, Z. And I would say, why? And he would say, because that's how because. you do it. And, and, and that was it. That was the answer. And it's, I suspect it's because as a builder, you are following your, your guidelines. Mm. So if there's any issues, you fall back onto that. But the questions were never there most of the time. It was just because that's how it's done. That's how that's I did how it 40 years ago. Yeah. yeah. That's how it's easy as well. The easiest way is the way I know how to do it. But Yeah, I, I guess time is money, yeah. I think all of us probably um, push ourselves when we can, when we get the chance, we go, right, I've, I could do it this way. I could use the domino or I could hand cut some ridiculous joinery that is going to make me earn no money, but I'm going to learn a new skill and have some fun. And you know, grow personally, which is the whole goal of life, I suppose. Yeah, well, I'm going um, to spend two weeks steaming timber to try and yeah. bend it into a shape that I want. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know all about it. <laughs> I was, I was going to say, Brian, uh, like when I was designing the, this table today, um, instead of googling dining tables, I knew that I wanted legs on my dining table, so I googled a specific kind of leg to look at all the different types of legs it could be. And this is going to be an extension table. So then I just started Googling um, extension table hardware. What 
and and for me by attacking the hardest part and for me that would be the mechanism which makes this type of table extend by working out the guts of it and then I could build a, off that and around it and the physical nature of how it was physically going to work also helped define what the table might look like just because of the practical nature of how it had to work I had to hide these things somehow so I had to have a skirt and I've got to do all these other things and so that is another way my design process goes I reckon that's a really good way of working like especially when yeah. it's something like an extendable table um, mm. reverse engineering to the hardware yeah. and to the function will yeah. help generate the design whereas if yeah. you have a design and then you're cramming things back into it and you're like yeah. you look at it that's not what I designed <laughs> and then it's back to the drawing board whereas yeah I think it's I think it's really cool mm. yeah, I do that, that, that hardware is not going to change you, unless no. you decide you want to revolutionize that <laughs> function which you probably and wouldn't. then you're making no money from the job <laughs> exactly yeah, <laughs> yeah but I think it depends it, on the um, like when you're talking about not wanting to learn like not wanting to be taught traditionally and sort of learning yourself um, I think there are different programs and different ways of learning. Like mm. it's, oh yeah, I've had interns that have come through my shop and they've interned with myself and another maker, and then they'll have a couple of days in their own workshop, and they're sort of watching the way we work in terms of creatively and also the way that we work in terms of batching things and safety aspects, and then they're getting two different views on how to do things mm. and working out their own way alongside it. So I think that's one really good way to learn. Um, but also things like um, the architecture school at Melbourne Uni that I did my master's in had a timber furniture uh, workshop that you applied for and you had to make a piece of furniture within a semester. And that, that was the first uh, introduction that I'd really had to furniture. So that, that was where I designed my pinch bench. Right. And now that has, it's moved on a bit and it's become a bit more of a... Um, it's brought in modern techniques like CAD CAM and um, CNC and vacuum forming and all this kind of stuff. And it's now being taught by an architect who graduated from that school. Um, right. Adam, right. Adam Markowitz is the teacher. And if you look at the work that his students produce, nothing looks the same. Yeah. Everything looks completely different because of the way he sets the parameters in the learning. That's cool. It'll be, you know, one semester it'll be every person has to use a different material or a different manufacturing technique or something and you just end up with this dramatically different That's uh, really furniture cool. as opposed to a TAFE where you know mm. this is how we cut mm. dovetails this is how we cut a finger joint everybody make a project out of using this technique um, and that's that's the kind of learning I would never want to be involved yeah. in because it's like yeah. god you know whatever we're going to get lots of finger joints but yeah. having those parameters of you must use glass or mm -hmm. and you can use you know whatever clay I mean that would just that would be really really fun mm -hmm. I mean these are students that yeah they have I think it's a three month long um, semester to produce a piece of furniture at the end of those three months these pieces are being uh, exhibited in Milan like <laughs> well, London, Milan. first piece of furniture <laughs> they've ever designed so this is the kind of level of work <laughs> so, talk about setting the bar pretty high talk about yeah. stress for the next piece huh yeah <laughs> I know <laughs> Well, they actually seem to be getting better, believe it or not. But, oh, God. Um, I don't know how. I see. You know, the problem there is, is that you you, you have this awesome uh, piece of furniture and and you get a lot of notoriety for it. Mm. But how mm -hmm. do you turn that into a business if you want to? Yeah, yeah. Because suddenly, 
either you mass produce a few of the same pieces or you just make one of them and they're like $60,000 each or something. And, yeah. and are you going to sell two or th- two of those a year to make a living? That's um, It's very, very tricky. I think yeah. most of the students just see it as a, a break from, from architecture more than anything. Right. But yeah, the step from that to having a full setup workshop and the costs involved or... Well, big... I mean, now there's quite a few sort of makers labs springing mm-hmm. up around Melbourne and Sydney and places like that where you have access to the machinery. Um, but again, trying to make a proper living working in a maker's lab when somebody, there might be a queue for the table saw, the thicknesser mm-hmm. you've set up, you turn your back, go away to a workbench, come back, oh, and somebody's reset your thicknesser. That's um, the worst thing. <laughs> yeah, so, but... I don't know. Sometimes you got to make these sacrifices to, to get started. Yeah, but yeah. it's a very it's a very different thing though to go for, I, and and I, I'm, I speak potentially under correction because I haven't gone through one of these courses. But I would imagine making a piece like that in a, a school environment to running a business. I mean, as much as they're both woodworking, they're still they're completely separate. Um, fields really because just because you can build a beautiful yeah. piece of furniture doesn't mean that you can run or sell a product or run a business I should say yeah yeah that's, no, that's right completely true. marketing there's is so, completely different <laughs> yeah there's so many great designers out there that should never run their own business yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. I would love to learn some of those techniques about running a business but I guess that's <laughs> half the half the <laughs> half Half the journey that we're on, so I guess it's Maybe just Maybe we can do an episode on it one day. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a great idea. All right, everyone, I reckon we'll leave it here for today. So to everyone listening, I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please go ahead and give it a rating on iTunes. That really helps us out. The Shop Store Podcast is available on iTunes and most other podcast apps, as well as YouTube. My name is Robin Lewis. Joey and Brian, thanks for hanging out today. Take care, everyone, and we will see you in the next one. See ya.